from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you in the new year. Welcome to This Day in History class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis sitting in this week for your regular host, Tracy V. Wilson. It's December 11th, and in one of the most pivotal moments of the French Revolution, King Louis XVI was indicted for high treason and crimes on this day in 1792. The man who would become France's final king before the French Revolution was born August 23, 1754, as Louis Auguste. He was his parents' seventh pregnancy, but the first child to survive to adulthood. Louis Auguste was born during the reign of his grandfather, Louis XV, who was also known as Louis the Beloved and ruled France for nearly six decades. Now, Louis XV Louis XVI's predecessor, died of smallpox in May of 1774. Normally, Louis Auguste's father would have assumed the throne, but he had died of tuberculosis nine years earlier. So in 1774, Louis Auguste became Louis XVI, King of France. I know it's a lot of Louis Louis, but we can keep track. Now, Louis XVI was 19 years old at the time, and he was already married to Marie Antoinette of Austria. They'd been married for about four years at that point. Louis XVI, we'll just call him Louis from now on, Louis started his reign with an eye towards values that came out of the era of enlightenment, greater freedom of the press, religious tolerance, and scientific inquiry, among other endeavors. Eliminating certain land taxes, increasing acceptance of non-Catholic Christians, abolishing serfdom, supporting the American Revolution, and even deregulating grain markets, these were all undertaken by Louis. Some were resisted and shot down by nobility, while other reforms were successful. It's those last two, though, that would prove to be pivotal. Deregulation of grain markets in France led to wild fluctuations in price. The common people struggled to afford bread or even the grain to make their own, and a number of riots broke out in 1775. That was a series of events often called the Bread War. 
And supporting the American Revolution the following year put France into serious debt, and the ensuing financial crisis was compounded by a Byzantine system of taxation. The next decade saw an erosion of the monarchy's credibility, and people came to view Louis and his wife Marie Antoinette as figures of not just an outdated system of governance, but one ignorant to the plight of the common people. Violence, civil unrest, and political turmoil became more prevalent. And Louis became increasingly irrelevant when it came to actual governance, and gained a reputation for being indecisive, unskilled at political maneuvering, and just generally being out of touch with the realities of the day and the need for policy compromise. So on July 14, 1789, a group of revolutionaries stormed the Bastille, which was a political prison in Paris. Though it only held seven prisoners at the time, the Bastille was viewed as symbolic of the monarchy's rule. Now, here's a side note. You may hear that Louis's journal for that day, July 14, 1789, held only a single word, nothing, which a lot of people say signifies how out of touch he was. That journal was actually just a hunting journal or a hunting log, so it's not really indicative of where Louis's head was at. And anyway, at the time, Louis was at the Palace of Versailles outside of Paris, and he only learned of the storming of the Bastille the following morning. So following these events, Louis was forced to accept the dissolution of the monarchy as it existed, and a constitutional monarchy was established. But after a failed assassination attempt on Marie Antoinette, Louis and his family relocated from Versailles outside of the city to the Tuileries Palace, which is right in the heart of the city, and the intent there was to be closer to the people. Now, in 1791, Louis tried to secretly flee the city in response to what he considered indignities and restraints placed upon him and his family by the constitutional government. He was being treated, he felt, a way a monarch should never be treated. On his way out of town, though, Louis left behind a political manifesto which outlined his dissatisfaction with the constitutional system. He considered it illegitimate. This manifesto was published in newspapers, though, making his true feelings public. And just four days after leaving Paris, Louis and his family were identified. He was recognized because his face was on the national currency, and he was arrested and returned to Paris. At this point, Louis lost all credibility, even with those who had stood by him, and he was viewed as more loyal to foreign governments rather than to his own people. Later that summer, on August 10th of 1792, the people of Paris had had enough. A group marched on the Tuileries Palace, and the royal family again fled, taking shelter with the legislative assembly. Louis XVI was found and arrested a few days later, and eventually taken to the Parisian prison known as the Temple. While he was in prison there, the government officially abolished the constitutional monarchy, declared a republic, and stripped Louis of all his titles and honors. So for the last few months of his life, Louis XVI was known as Citizen Louis Capet. That's the name that would have been his ancestral surname. Citizen Louis Capet's trial before the National Convention began on December 3, 1792. More than a week after the trial started, bringing us to today, December 11th, Louis was brought out of the temple and before the assembly, formally indicted. Now, there were 33 charges in total. These ranged from ordering the army to march on the citizens of Paris to attempting to flee the city, and from ignoring counter-revolutions to defanging the navy and ignoring foreign threats, particularly from Austria, where Marie Antoinette was from. The final of these 33 charges? You caused the blood of Frenchmen to flow. Louis, through his defense team, responded to his individual charges on December 26th, generally demanding proof, claiming he wasn't involved in certain decisions, saying he knew nothing of the claims, or, to borrow a more contemporary political phrase, passing the buck to his ministers and their decisions. Louis's lawyer, Raymond de Sez, argued the former king's case for three hours straight that day. And it wasn't until three weeks later that Louis XVI was convicted overwhelmingly of colluding with foreign powers. Now, 
721 voters were tasked with choosing his punishment. There were four options, including life imprisonment or banishment from France. But on January 20th, 1793, 361 of the voters, exactly 50% plus one vote, sentenced Louis to death. And on the very next day, citizen Louis Capet was executed by guillotine. The beheading took place in the Place de la Révolution, an open square where the revolutionary government conducted the majority of its public executions. It's the same spot where Robespierre, Olympe de Gouges, and Marie Antoinette, who followed her husband to the guillotine eight months later, were executed. The plaza went through a series of name changes and took the names of both Louis XV and Louis XVI, but in 1830 returned to its original name of Place de la Concorde. Today, located along the banks of the Seine, you'll find the Place de la Concorde full of obelisks and fountains. To learn more about this, listen to the November 19, 2008 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called How the French Revolution Worked. Or scroll back on your podcast and find the November 2nd episode of this very podcast, which is the day Marie Antoinette was born. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. And uh, stick around, because tomorrow we're going to learn about a disastrous explosion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast where we build the time machine, and all you have to do is hop in. The day was December 11th, 1978. A group of robbers stole $5 million in cash and around a million dollars in jewelry from the air cargo building of the Lufthansa airline at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. Most of the people involved in the heist participated in organized crime, and the event has since been depicted in books and films, including Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. 
Lufthansa cargo workers Louis Werner and Peter Gruenwald knew that about once a month, Lufthansa flew in large amounts of unmarked money that was exchanged in West Germany by tourist and military service people. Sometimes that cash wasn't transferred to banks until the next day, when trucks would pick it up to transport it. Werner and Gruenwald figured that that was the perfect opportunity to steal the cash. But Werner had a bunch of gambling debt, and he told bookmaker Martin Krugman about the heist plan. Krugman, in turn, took the idea to the Lucchesi crime family mobster Henry Hill, and word soon made it to gangster James Burke, also known as Jimmy the Gent. Burke, Hill, and Warner then went about planning the heist, using information like maps, reports of employees who would be present, and details of the security measures that were in place in the building. Around 3 a.m. on December 11, 1978, a group of armed men in a black van pulled up to the cargo hold's loading platform. Several of the men entered the building while the van was driven to the back of the site. They restrained the employees and ordered a supervisor to open the vault so the alarm would not trigger. They loaded the money and jewelry into the van and drove away, later transferring their haul to other vehicles. The robbery took just over an hour. At the time, it was the largest cash theft ever in the U.S. The van driver, Parnell Edwards, was supposed to take the van to a junkyard that the mob controlled, but he parked it illegally on the street in Brooklyn instead. The van was soon discovered, along with Edwards' fingerprints and footprint. Not long after, Edwards was murdered. And within months, several other people suspected of committing the crime were murdered or disappeared. Hill went into the witness protection program, and in 1980, he began testifying against the people involved in the robbery. Other informants in the case also entered the witness protection program. Investigators suspected James Burke of orchestrating the heist, but there wasn't enough evidence to connect Burke to the heist or murders. He died in prison in 1996 after he was incarcerated for other crimes. The only person ever convicted of the robbery was Louis Werner. Vincent Asaro, part of the Bonanno crime family, was arrested on robbery charges related to the heist in 2014, but he was acquitted the next year. Only a portion of the stolen money was recovered. Worth around $6 million in 1978, the haul would be worth $24 million in 2019. I'm Eve Shefcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you haven't gotten your fill of history yet, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. You can also email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? 
time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work hello and welcome to this day in history class a show that breathes in history one day at a time i'm gabe luzier and in this episode we're talking about the first dentist to ever give his patients the giggles and why for him it later became no laughing matter The day was December 11th, 1844. A 29-year-old dentist named Horace Wells pioneered the use of nitrous oxide in dental procedures by testing the gas on himself. At the time, anesthesia did not yet exist, meaning that every person in need of a dental or surgical operation had to decide which was worse, the pain from the ailment or the pain of the treatment. Wells recognized the potential use of nitrous oxide for pain relief, and to confirm his theory, he decided to try it himself. As for nitrous oxide, it was first synthesized in 1775 by English chemist Joseph Priestley, the discoverer of oxygen. However, Priestley was just excited to have discovered an interesting new gas. He didn't bother experimenting with its inhalation or with trying to find a practical use for it. That task was taken up about 20 years later by another English chemist named Sir Humphrey Davy. He observed both the analgesic and euphoric effects of nitrous oxide, and in 1800, he suggested the gas could be used in surgical operations as a way to deaden pain. You might expect that Davy's solution to the problem of pain would have been greeted with open arms, but it wasn't. Because pain couldn't be eliminated, humans tried to make themselves feel better by ascribing meaning to their suffering. Many societies taught that pain was a deserved punishment for the sins of man, and that to find a way around that was to subvert the will of God. As a result, much of the world was hesitant to utilize any kind of anesthesia, and Davy's theory about nitrous oxide would go untested for another 40 years. The medical use of nitrous oxide may have been off the table, but the world was quick to find another use for it, as an inhalant for getting high. The euphoria that resulted from inhaling nitrous oxide led to a new pastime in the early 1800s, People would host parties or attend live demonstrations where volunteers would inhale the gas and then stumble around on stage, giggling and acting silly. 
these loopy antics earned it the on-the-nose nickname of Laughing Gas. On the evening of December 10th, 1844, dentist Horace Wells and his wife Elizabeth attended one such demonstration at Union Hall in their hometown of Hartford, Connecticut. They had heard about the show through an advertisement in the Hartford Times, which described the Laughing Gas Entertainment as a chance to see participants, quote, laugh, sing, dance, speak, or fight, according to the leading trait of their character. During the demonstration, Wells noticed that one of the gassed-up participants had injured his leg when he ran into a wooden bench, but didn't seem to notice. In fact, he literally laughed it off, leading Wells to wonder if nitrous oxide could be used to relieve pain during dental procedures. After the show, he made arrangements with the event's organizer, Gardner Colton, to conduct a trial with the gas at his office. The very next morning, Wells enlisted one of his former students to extract an impacted molar while Wells was under the effects of nitrous oxide. Once the gas wore off, Wells claimed he had felt no more pain than, quote, the prick of a pin. The first use of medical anesthesia had proven a success, and Wells soon began using the gas on his own patients. It was the start of what he called a new era in tooth pulling. Several weeks later, after a dozen or so successful uses of the gas, Wells decided to demonstrate its analgesic effects in the major city of Boston. Once there, he contacted William T. Morton, another of his former dental students. Morton introduced Wells to prominent physicians and dentists in the area and helped set up a demonstration for them, as well as for the faculty and students of Harvard's medical school. On the day of the event, a medical student volunteered to have a tooth extracted under nitrous oxide, but as Wells did the deed, the patient groaned and then cried out as if in pain. Hours later, the student explained his reaction as a case of nerves, saying that he hadn't felt a thing and was actually unaware of when the extraction occurred. Unfortunately, the clarification came too late. Wells had been booed by the audience, with most of the observers labeling the demonstration a failure and Wells a fraud. The most important day of his career had turned into a disaster, and a disheartened Wells returned to Hartford the very next day. The incident marked the beginning of a devastating downward spiral for Wells. In the following months, he sank into a deep depression, closed his practice, and gave up dentistry. Desperate to clear his good name, he started experimenting on himself, not only with nitrous oxide, but with ether and chloroform as well. Today, it's believed that Wells became addicted to these substances as a way of coping with his mental and emotional pain. That trauma was worsened in October of 1846, when William T. Morton, the former student who had helped him organize the event in Boston, demonstrated how ether could be used as an anesthetic for surgery. That betrayal led to a lengthy dispute over who deserved credit for the discovery of anesthesia. Wells fought his former student's claim in the press, but the controversy took a toll on his already fragile mental state. By early 1848, Horace Wells was living alone in New York City, estranged from his wife and son, 
and slipping deeper into opioid addiction. On his 33rd birthday, likely out of his mind on chloroform, Wells threw sulfuric acid into the faces of two women he had met on the street. He was arrested and imprisoned that night, but he managed to smuggle a bottle of chloroform and a straight razor into his cell. That evening, the wrongly disgraced dentist took his own life. Almost 20 years later, the long-running debate was finally put to rest when the American Dental Association recognized Horace Wells as the discoverer of anesthesia. Six years later, the American Medical Association followed suit, declaring Wells the father of surgical anesthesia. By that time, nitrous oxide was in wide use as a general anesthetic. That continued until the early 1900s, when it was supplanted by Novocaine and eventually by Lidocaine. These forms of local anesthesia were much easier to use and produced more reliable results than nitrous oxide. Still, the gas made a comeback in the 1960s as a way to sedate conscious patients and ease their anxiety. This use as a sedative rather than an anesthetic has continued ever since. Horace Wells' dream of pain-free medicine became a reality for millions of people worldwide, but for him, it was the cause of an even deeper pain, the kind that no liquid, gas, or pill can ever truly relieve. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also get in touch with us directly by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.